0: Hello, and welcome to Asia Inside Out, where we take you beyond the latest headlines for an inside look into Asian and global affairs. This is Anupav Gupta of the Asia Society Policy Institute, and we're recording this episode in Delhi, where I'm currently here for the launch of a new report on Chinese public diplomacy in South and Central Asia. The report... Silk Road Diplomacy, Deconstructing Beijing's Toolkit to Influence South and Central Asia is a joint effort by Data, CSIS, and the Asia Society Policy Institute. The report features case studies on six different countries, and one in particular is very interesting, and that's Sri Lanka. Uh, It's been a key hub of the Belt and Road Initiative, and it now has a new president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who is the brother of the former president, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who has now been appointed as prime minister of this new government. So he's returned to power. Uh, and so it's a lot of new uh, and interesting developments uh, in Sri Lanka. And so I wanted to devote this episode to what's what's going to come up next, uh, how this election is going to impact Sri Lanka's foreign policy going forward. And I am delighted to have someone here with us who is an expert on this and can speak to this issue really, really well. Uh, and so I want to introduce Dinusha Pandita Ratne, who is a non-resident fellow of the Lakshman Kadirgamar Institute, LKI, where she previously also served as executive director. Dinusha, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for taking time to speak with us.
1: Thank you so much, Anubab.
0: Great. So why don't we get started? Uh, My first question is about the new president. What is his worldview? How does he approach policymaking? How does he approach foreign policy?
1: Oh, that's a great uh, opening question. Uh, I think his view of Sri Lanka's place in the world uh, can be Uh, summarized in one phrase, which is that Sri Lanka must develop itself. Um, And those two words, develop itself, uh, I believe are the crucial ones. Um, The word development appears over 100 times in his election manifesto in many different contexts, uh, including to emphasize that Sri Lanka will be committed to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, but also uh, most often in terms of economic development and various types of economic development. Um, And soon after the president was elected and was asked what he would do for uh, Sri Lanka's minority communities, um, he did say that it was more important to focus on development uh, above what uh, I think he saw as political rights and freedoms. To put it simplistically, he prioritizes the economic over the political, um, and moreover, he feels that Sri Lanka has to drive this development agenda by itself and as a partner with other countries by being aware of and also by leveraging uh, Sri Lanka's own strategic importance for government ends. Uh, rather than, uh, which I think was the approach of the pre 2019 government, that is the 2015 government, rather than, the, uh, than taking the approach of seeking concurrently to address rights based concerns, both past uh, and present. In general, although it is a sort of a, an approach of non alignment, uh, but it is a slightly different approach of non-alignment to, to, to take up your question of you know, what his approach to foreign policy is. Many have pointed out uh, that uh, Sri Lanka's core foreign policy of non-alignment or neutrality will not change, um, and, and that's a valid point, uh, but I would say it's also important to recognize that each government in Sri Lanka adopts its own version of non-alignment, which incidentally, I think, is one of the problems of the term. Uh, I would describe the approach of the 2015 government as more of a a normative non-alignment, in which it sought to show adherence by Sri Lanka to international norms and principles, and present Sri Lanka as being a better global citizen, if you like. President Gotabe's version of non-alignment Uh, would be rather um, a more pragmatic non-alignment rather than a normative non-alignment.
0: That's very interesting. And, you know, one thing that seemed to... Hobbled the last government was the fact that it was a coalition government between two leaders who didn't seem to have you know the same vision for for governance. The rift between uh, President Sena and Prime Minister Khamisinge and their parties really came to the fore last year during the constitutional crisis. And so my question is, uh, in the, in the West at least, there was this perception that that division between the two top leaders led to um, a little bit of Sri Lankan policymaking being frozen or not really having a, a clear direction going forward. Do you think that now that you have a new government, that that's going to change? And maybe I might add a second question to that. How does having a former president in Mahinda Rajapaksa now being a, a, a prime minister— do you see that there's a prospect for another sort of divided government, or do you think the two the two Rajapaksas, the two brothers, are on the same page?
1: Well, uh, there's no question that the uh, there were deep divisions in the 2015 government, and those had very damaging repercussions, most obviously in the lack of action that led to the tragic attacks on Easter Sunday this year. As to whether the election will energize you know the state i think that any election with a significant margin which was the case in this election tends to have sort of a initial positive energizing effect i mean of confidence and capability and that's what you know would be described as the honeymoon period in terms of maintaining that uh, of course the question is whether and how quickly the president can deliver what he promised um, and it's important to to I think go back to the manifesto of language here and uh, I quote he, he, he said if I remember correctly that the uh, the other important task meaning apart from security is to create a progressive um, national economy and a pluralistic society. There are going to be different segments of the population that will prioritize these approaches less or more, and they will do so differently. So Mm -hmm. Colombo's private sector, for example, is naturally going to prioritize economic progress. Uh, Civil society will understandably prioritize a pluralist society. The important thing is that he promised both, and the Sri Lankan people as a whole would want him to deliver both. Um, And the clock for that starts ticking now, uh, and not when the parliamentary elections happen next year, which is when people would expect his brother Mahindra Rajpaksa to be, in a sense, uh, politically confirmed as as the prime minister. Um, He is, of course, already the prime minister, but there is a sense that his political legitimacy would be increased after winning a parliamentary election. Uh, The question you raise on uh, how they will work together is a political question, but also a constitutional question, given that the president has Committed himself to, if they gain a two-thirds majority, to uh, changing the the constitution so as to centralize more power in the presidency.
0: Let me now turn to China, which was a major topic of discussion here this week, as we discussed the report on Chinese public diplomacy in South and Central Asia. In the U.S., for a lot of people, the Rajpaksa name raises concern that Sri Lanka will be a pro-China. Country once again. Do you think that's fair? And second, how do you think this new regime will approach the relationship with Beijing?
1: Another excellent question. And, and with regard to sort of seeing the Rajapaksas as, as a unit, um, I think many have uh, pointed out that they do seem to have different um, d- different modes of engagement, uh, different styles um the early indications are that gotabe rajapaksa sees china essentially as an economic partner and also that he will quite openly and frankly use china's strategic interest in sri lanka uh, as leverage to gain for sri lanka from other countries especially foreign investment from other countries. As he openly said, I think, in his interview with the Hindu, India, Japan, uh, Australia and Singapore should all tell their companies to come and invest in Sri Lanka because if they don't, and, and here's the lever, then not only Sri Lanka but countries all over Asia are going to, uh, are going to have no alternative to China's Belt and Road. I do think that that actually has long been the implicit message in Sri Lanka's foreign policy and Sri Lanka's economic relations with other countries, but here it's been made uh, very explicit. There is a question mark about this approach, because a key differentiating factor, uh, which we we talked about uh, at uh, the Exxon conference that happened uh, yesterday, is that uh, China has a high degree of control over its its companies, uh, most obviously of its SOEs, um, and and therefore, it has a high degree of control over outbound foreign investment to particular countries. And India, Japan, and other countries do not exert the same degree of uh, control or direction. So that's a factor that may limit the success of this already explicit approach to gain foreign investment from other countries. And it it indicates that it's vital for Sri Lanka to continue to improve the ease of doing business index, uh, or the indicators of that index, uh, which will organically draw foreign investment to Sri Lanka from a wide variety of source countries. The other factor that indicates that uh, President Gotabe Rajapaksa will have a different approach to China, both compared to the 2015 government and also to um, his brother's government, is his declared intention to renegotiate the FDI deal that involved the 99-year lease um, of the Hambantota port to China. Again, I think we can expect Some limited success from this, given uh, that uh, uh, other countries have managed to renegotiate their agreements with China, uh, such as Malaysia with its East Coast Rail link project however uh, limits to that success are, are in the fact that China is now because of the renegotiation experience that it has gained is is also a more mature and seasoned negotiator in these situations and the comparable negotiations it has had uh, with uh, with other countries uh, show that it's able to renegotiate and offer just about enough of an amendment to appeal to domestic political sentiments in the host country, while also ensuring that China's interests are protected or even improved in some way. So that is, is something to watch for in this process of renegotiation.
0: Because the, the, the handing over the lease to China was came about because of a renegotiation in the first place.
1: I think the impetus for the 99-year lease was that you know, Sri Lanka had a high debt burden and not uh, necessarily to China. Uh, as uh, people have pointed out, I think uh, China uh, holds less than 10% of uh, Sri Lanka's external debt. Uh, I think equivalent amount is held by Japan and certainly more by the multilateral institutions. So it wasn't specifically the Chinese debt that was d- difficult to pay, but debt in general. Um, and the FDI received for the port uh, did help uh, Sri Lanka to uh, service its uh, its foreign debt to a variety of source countries. I
0: and mean, it makes a lot of sense that Sri Lanka would use its leverage to gain economic development assistance from a variety of different major powers, especially given the current U.S.-China competition uh, for influence around the world. So, onto the United States, then um, the other country that. You know, has, a, has had a longstanding relationship with Sri Lanka. Two priorities, I would say, over the last year for the U.S. government were um, getting approval from the Sri Lankan government for the Millennium Challenge Corporation Compact, um, which basically has identified two projects for which it will give essentially has agreed to give grants uh, to Sri Lanka um, as assistance for development, as well as a, a new visiting forces agreement, which essentially determines the, the various rules um, by which U.S. Um, troops can be in Sri Lanka. And so both of these, um, the U.S. government has prioritized. There's a perception in the U.S. that the divided government in, over the past year prevented that from happening, and there is hope that the new regime would quickly past these two things. I've heard skepticism that that there will be quick approval. So two questions. One is, what's kind of holding these things back? And two, do you see this government prioritizing this to improve relations with the US, let's say in the first half of 2020?
1: Yeah, there certainly was a lot of contentious discussion um, leading up to the election about the MCC grant and also about uh, the possible new status of forces agreement. In my view, you asked about the reasons uh, for that. In my view, a lot of that contentious discussion was um, political rather than uh, rational or sober analysis. It's, uh, and it's hard to say what will happen to the agreements now, but it wouldn't be completely surprising if the MCC Compact were to be signed. So some of the more vociferous voices against the grant uh, leading up to the elections have, after the elections, spoken more positively about the uh, the MCC grant. So uh, we'll have to see. Um, the same goes for the status of force, uh, forces agreement. Um, and in this respect, it's worth noting that a, a different uh, security agreement with the U.S., an acquisition and cross-servicing agreement um, was signed in 2007 when uh, President Gotabe Rajapaksa was defense secretary. So if he sees benefits to Sri Lanka in such an agreement and uh, it doesn't entangle entangle Sri Lanka in great power rivalries, which is a situation he has expressly said Sri Lanka must avoid, then one could expect a more uh, pragmatic uh, rather than um, political approach to prevail. Uh, One other uh, sort of point to to watch with uh, U.S.-Sri-Lanka relations, I guess in in strategic terms, is to see whether um, Sri Lanka will continue to participate in the U.S.-led military uh, exercises uh, that it has been more recently involved in, um, including uh, the carrot exercise, which it participated for the first time in two thousand seventeen, and uh, the RIMPAC exercises, exercises as well, which it also participated for the first time in.
0: Great, and it, you know, it seems that in its kind of non-alignment strategy, that Sri Lanka's essentially had to balance a stronger kind of security relationship with with the United States, with a kind of blossoming economic partnership with Sri Lanka, and if the government's priority really truly is, in the short term at least, you know, development first, develop itself. Does that suggest that if, say, U.S.-China competition gets a little more contentious and there are starker choices that both the United States and China are asking countries to make, is there a sense then that given the economic priorities that those might trump the security relationship?
1: I think in such a situation that the U.S., uh, sorry, that Sri Lanka would take pains to sort of revert to um, what it views as sort of the long-standing practices of, of Sri Lanka. So, you know, anything that is quite new that happened in the past couple of years would probably be put aside for the moment. And they would rely on saying, well, these are the things that we've always done. And uh, that's not got to do with taking sides. That's just what what has long been our practice. And we will stick to those practices.
0: Sure. I mean, this is the kind of balancing act we see a lot in the Asia Pacific and in in ASEAN, where countries have to really balance these two kinds of interests between the US and China. And it's interesting to see how that's starting to happen in other regions of the world, you know, now in the Indian Ocean region. So that brings us to the other kind of major power that's a close partner of Sri Lanka, and that's India. How does the new president approach India? And how do you see that relationship evolving going forward?
1: Well, we're in early days. And so far, the president has only traveled to India uh, and not to other countries. So uh, certainly at the moment, we can say that bilateral relations are off to a good start.
0: And the visit was successful, right?
1: I think it was seen as successful um, from, certainly from Sri Lanka's perspective. And, you know, I would think also from, from India's perspective, uh, it seemed like a lot of good work was was done in sort of trying to to build an atmosphere of of welcoming um, President Gautama Rajpaksa and of building trust. And I think that sort of good start was already, uh, you know, signaled in the president's election manifesto when he expressly mentioned India ahead of China, and in particular uh, in relation to working together to ensure regional security. Um, so in that respect, we can expect both countries to continue to en- engage in military exercises that they have uh, long engaged in, including the Mitra Shakti exercise and the naval the naval exercises which are held annually, and the uh, trilateral exercises with the Maldives and India as well. So, from both countries' perspective, I think that the retaining the security engagement, uh, the strategic strategic engagement will remain a priority. Um, similarly, India has uh, has long held the kind of top spot for. Uh, naval visits to Sri Lanka uh, in terms of the number of its ships that visit Sri Lanka. I think Japan and uh, China are in second and third place, respectively, but India is sort of quite a long way ahead. Uh, for India, I think connectivity agreements will be a priority, making sure those uh, are seen through to completion and are successful Uh, The East Container Terminal uh, project, for example, which was announced uh, under the previous government, a project that they would uh, have said that they will do with Japan. And uh, another item on the agenda could and perhaps should be conclusion of the trade agreement, the second generation trade agreement uh, that has long been discussed, uh, both pre-2015 and after 2015. It had another iteration. Uh, it, from a, a more general agreement to a, an agreement that was focused on the southern states of India. But uh, that will be something, I think, of an indicator to see, you know, whether there really is that, that sort of trust to, to go forward on, on something concrete.
0: Great. Um, you, know, you talked about the develop itself narrative, and really it sounds like you know a narrative of self-reliance. And so all my questions so far have been about the major powers that are active in the Indian Ocean region. But if Sri Lanka looks at its own neighborhood, what are some of its priorities in South Asia and the Indian Ocean region?
1: Yeah, I think in terms of its, um, it, certainly after 2015, we, we saw a very strong emphasis on the Indian Ocean. Uh, And I think that priority will continue. Um, It's, uh, again, like non-alignment, got slightly different iterations. Uh, So priority on the Indian Ocean also has different iterations. The, The sort of byword after 2015 was to develop Sri Lanka as a hub of the Indian Ocean between Dubai and Singapore. In During the president's visit to New Delhi, he spoke about in the Indian Ocean being regarded as Sri Lanka as a zone of peace, uh, an idea that has a very long history uh, in Sri Lanka and in sort of the regional foreign policy terminology. So we can expect to see um, a continued focus on the Indian Ocean, but perhaps a slightly more security-related focus rather than trade-related focus, because certainly the the emphasis of the of the 2015 government was more a trading hub, an economic hub of the Indian Ocean, whereas um, the initial signs from President Rajapaksa are that uh, he expects the uh, Indian Ocean to be a, a peaceful area. Um, so that's a, a slightly different emphasis.
0: Great. Well. With that, I think we can bring our conversation to an end. Dhanusha, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us for the Asia Inside Out podcast. We look forward to having you back uh, and do visit us when, when you're in New York the next time you're there.
1: Thank you so much, Anubhav. It was a pleasure to be part of the launch of the report. Helen. thank you very much for having me on this podcast.